for those who don't know, we, we have a family of churches, which is kind of, excuse me, just a, a group of, uh, a wider group of people who feel like they've got the same values, DNA, uh, that are doing the journey together. And these guys are actually not leading. Do you know what? Why don't you just come up? I'm sorry I didn't give you any warning. <clears throat> but um, you're not currently leading a church. It'd be great to come up, come up, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and uh, you know, what you're seeing God do and what you, what you long to see him do. Who wants to great. go first? Uh, so we, we were leading a church in Southampton for many years. Uh, and we just long to see the church rediscover that Jesus transforms lives. That's what we really get excited about. Uh, and at the moment, we work for the Church of England across Cumbria, um, me to support the church to engage better with youth, young adults and kids, uh, and to explore what church planting looks like in, uh, in the hills and valleys of Cumbria. Uh, and um, Nikki, do you want to say what you do? Yes, yeah, so I, my job title is Director of Ministry Development, but basically I say I've got the best job in the world because it's, it's encouraging people to step into the calling that God's got in their, on their lives. So I feel like I work with people to help them um, discover God's calling. Um, I think the thing that Andy said is, is true, that we, we really do feel like we're part of the family, family of churches. We've had a really interesting journey the last few years. God asked us to move to um, Bangkok in Thailand, and while everyone was going through COVID, we were busy shedding our stuff as God told us to, um, to, to leave everything behind and to go. So it's, it's strange for us to be in the north of England because we were, we we're southerners really, um, but we are just happy to serve God wherever he calls us to go. So. What, what, what are you seeing God doing at the moment? Like, what, what things are you seeing that are encouraging you? So I think there's a real desire in the church in Cumbria to see the church engage afresh with with younger people and uh, gentle steps and moves towards uh, church planting uh, and church planting in places that may be more challenging to engage with um, but where young people need to uh, know who Jesus is. So we've got our first church planter who's part of the family of churches as well who's, who's moving up in a couple of months to, uh, to lead a new church plant which is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that we often get called into places um, that are the first people in those places. I mean, there's, there's lots of people that have already been in Cumbria serving, and, uh, but I feel like there's, there's a wave of, of God's spirit moving in Cumbria at the moment, and, but we're just at the beginning of it. I think there are plans. It feels like God's doing something, and it feels like we're, the, we're maybe the first or one of the first to be there. Um, and um, it feels like, there's more plans. I can't tell you what they are, but it feels like God's calling people. Um, particularly in Cumbria, we're missing, um, as, as everywhere in the Church of England, the, 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 like the missing generation. And it feels like God's, um, God's calling people to make him known amongst that generation. They're not forgotten. Um, uh, yes, that's what I think. Great. And just before we let you sit back down again and enjoy the rest of your holiday, I'm sorry about this. Um, there's a story you told about your time in Southampton where the Lord just really came through as you were trying to obey him. I've never forgotten it. I was really encouraged. So I'd, could you just share with, with everyone what happened? Yeah, I'd love to. So, so, um, so I, I was vicar of this church in Southampton for uh, eight years or so. And uh, when we arrived, the church was just had got itself in a bit of a mess, really. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we just started praying because we knew, that, we knew that God could do anything, but we knew that some clever strategies or plans wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't solve it, that we needed the Lord to move. 
Um, and so we, we prayed, and the prayer was just the desperate prayer of, um, uh, Lord, uh, you need to do this because we can't. And, and I, I felt really challenged. I felt really challenged by the Lord to, to go out and door knock, um, which, you know, I can tell you all the reasons why I think that's a silly thing to do. Um, but I felt God whisper to me that, that I needed to door knock on the, on the estate because um, there's, there's an area, there's an area, an estate in the, uh, in the parish that was the, the poorest in the city. Uh, and th- like that, that's what the Lord would want you to do, like to go to the, to the poorest. And so I went and, and just knocked on doors and said, um, uh, I'm the new vicar, can, can I pray for you? And, you know, sure enough, some people invited you in for a cup of tea and some people told you, uh, less than politely um, uh, to, to go away, um, and uh, there was one particular day that, that, that we did this, and 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 I was told uh, again and again to go away, to clear off. Um, I'm not going to use the words that they used, um, and it just felt different than the other days. So, so we we went and um, we, we stood at the bus stop, and we just prayed, Lord, if you want us to do something different today, um, then tell us, then whisper to us. And, um, and just one of the groups that I, I just wonder, I just wonder if God's telling us to, to, go, to go to the park and to go and talk to the people in the park about Jesus. And so, so sure enough, there was a park um, a few hundred meters away and, uh, and we went and, you know, I was, I was hoping to find a group of uh, um, maybe young mums uh, with, their, with their kids or people that maybe were feeling a bit lonely that were ready for a conversation. And we walked into the park and there was this, there was this group of, of, uh, um, of year nine uh, girls together. Um, they were quite hostile and they weren't really up for us uh, as a group, three of us. There was a, uh, two guys and a girl uh, sharing, sharing our faith. But we went over and we sat down and we said, hey, we're just from the local church. Can we... Can we talk with you? And, um, and you know, the, can we pray for you? And, and, and the story was that we could pray for their sort of like aunts, sisters, cat, like something that was just way out there, like something that wasn't, that wasn't related to them and their life. And, and, then, and then they would let us pray for them and, and, and then we could clear off. Um, and, and as we were sharing a bit about our faith, uh, one of them just said, you just said that prayer was the conversation with God. It was about speaking to God and hearing from God. So go on then, pray, and tell us what God's saying. <laughs> so, 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 so we prayed. And, and my prayer was, God, if, if you're gonna, God, if you're going to speak to me ever again, <laughs> ever, 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 um, please now, and the other two people I was with, were, I know, gifted in the prophetic and hear from God, and and we prayed and we waited, and and I, and I turned to the first one and said, um, so, so what's what's God said? And he's like, Do you know, right now, uh, right now, nothing. It's fine. There's another person to ask. So I asked my other friend, and uh, sure enough, nothing. And and there was just something running around in my head. It was it was it was a, it was a quiet whisper. It was the quiet whisper that you miss all the time that I wouldn't have heard if I wasn't absolutely desperate, absolutely desperate for God to speak. Uh, but I was desperate, so, so I shared it. And it was the thing that, uh, that they'd been talking about when we, when we went up to them. We hadn't heard, we couldn't have known. And it was quite personal for, for, for one of their lives. And, and, and we shared it. 
And you know, they were just totally, totally blown away. Not that we could hear God. That, that, didn't, that didn't bother them really. But not really that God existed. That, that didn't bother them either. They were blown away that God knew them that God heard them, that God saw their story, that God saw their life. They just couldn't believe it. Um, and so we talked about faith and we talked about, um, we talked about all sorts of things. And then they said, do it again, do it again, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, all right, we'll do it again. But like, this isn't, a, this isn't a, a, like a magic trick. Um, this isn't a show. So we'll do it again. But this time we do it. We all do it together. Not just the three of us, but we all do it. So they said, look, what we want to do is we don't want to make each other giggle. So we'll sit in a circle, but like facing out from each other. Uh, so we're, we're like, our backs are each other. So we can't see each other. Uh, so we can't catch each other's eye and giggle. And, and, and we just prayed and we, we invited the Holy Spirit. It was no show. There was no noise. There was nothing dramatic. We just sat in silence um, for a few moments. And then we just said, what's going on? And one of them said that they just felt this like deep, like warmth, like something was giving her a hug, and she wanted to know what what that was. And we talked about we talked about encountering the Holy Spirit. And and another person said they had all these pictures that come into their mind, and they wanted to know what was going on. And we talked a bit about hearing from God and how God speaks to us today. Um, and and then we just and we talked. Uh, they wanted to know about whether God could heal today. They wanted to know whether God could forgive them. Um, these were questions that they were asking. We weren't prompting them. They wanted to know about heaven and hell and but all of those big, deep questions. And we shared, for, we shared for a couple of hours. It was the most incredible afternoon. But this little church community that I was part of, 20 or 30 people, really struggling, no money, hole in the roof, buckets out when it rained because it leaked. Uh, and, and I went back home, and I, I was sharing with my sister this testimony on the phone. I rung her up, because, you know, it's not the sort of thing that... I'd love to see that every day, but I, I haven't seen that sort of thing every day. Uh, and uh, as, as I was talking to my sister, I just got an email ping in, uh, first from a lady in the church, to say, hey, I just want to let you know that I, I just put a bit of money into the church bank account. Um, and then the second from the treasurer, call me, someone's put a quarter of a million pounds in the church bank account. <laughs> And there was this thing of honoring, honoring the, the poorest in the community, but God having all the money in the universe. And so the strategy was going to the poor because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, and then the response was all the provision that was ever needed being given by a generous God that can do it. And so from there, then, then we saw the church really transformed and God did a new thing. But, but it started with honoring uh, the poorest in the community because that's, that's where Jesus would be. And it started with faithfulness because that's, that's what Jesus asked of us. So, yeah. Amazing. All right, guys. Thanks so much for, for, for sharing that. And sorry for putting you on the spot, but sorry, but not sorry. Um, I, I, I want to talk this morning about how all of us can begin to move in the power and the gifts of the Spirit more. And I think this really matters because if you're anything like me, I mean, I turned up at this church years ago now, um, and I'd never really seen the prophetic, the sort of stuff that Andy was just sharing on. I, I'd never seen that happen. I'd never prayed for anybody to be healed and seen them healed. And then I saw other people doing it, and my immediate response was, well, they can do it, but I can't do it. 
I don't know if you ever disqualify yourself like that. Um, and, and since then, I've been reading my Bible a little bit more, and I've discovered sort of in the Scripture two truths that if we hold on to them, then what it does is it blows the doors wide open. Um, it, it allows us to move in confidence and freedom in the ministry and the power of the Spirit, that all of us might hear God and share what he's saying, that we all might pray for the sick and we'll see some of them healed, that, that this is the whole ministry of Jesus is for the whole church of Jesus. Um, and I just want to share with the time that I've got uh, just what those two trees are that I've found in the hope that they'll be helpful to you as well. Um, I heard uh, a while back about this rabbi and he would carry around in his pocket two stones and on one of the stones he would have written, for me, the world was made. And on the other stone he would have written, I am but dust and ashes. And he would use each of these stones as he had need. So sometimes he'd need to be reminded that the whole world was made for him, that he was special and precious. And other days he'd need to be reminded that the whole world didn't revolve around him. And so he would, those things, they seem to be contradictory, but they're actually, they're both true. And the, the sort of the two truths that I want to share today, if you were to write them on two stones, they might seem to contradict each other, but they're both true. And I found them in this little bit of uh, scripture in John uh, chapter 7, verse 37. And the, the background is Jesus is at a big festival in Jerusalem. And he stands up at the end of this festival and says this. I'll read it to you. John uh, 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So just in that, those couple of verses, there's a couple of things. Here's the first one. So the first truth, if we were to get a, literally get a stone and write the truth on the stone, here's what we would write. The Spirit is a gift. And so John says, at that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And what he's talking about is the fact that Jesus has not yet been lifted up on the cross to die, lifted up from the grave to live, lifted up to be with the Father to reign. He hadn't yet, at that point when he said this, that hadn't happened yet. And he's saying that effectively when Jesus is glorified in that way through his death, his resurrection and his ascension, the Spirit's going to come. And so the first truth for us to get is he has now been glorified. He has been lifted up. And so the spirit flows from what he's done. And that, and I'm aware, even as I say that, that can sound like, oh, that's a nice little, you know, theological nugget. You know, the spirit comes because Jesus has been glorified. But does that make any real difference to our lives? And where, it, where this speaks to us, if we get it, is... Um, we each of us, I don't want to put something on you that's not on you, but my experience is many of us, what we do when we pray for healing for someone is we immediately disqualify ourselves and we say, look, I can't pray for healing because I don't have any faith. Or I can't hear God speak because I, you know, I don't pray enough. Or God can't use me because I'm too scared. He can't use me because I don't have the experience of that person. Or he can't use me because I know me and I know my life is a mess. And, and although we're told that these things are for all of us, the reality is when it comes down to it, when the rubber hits the road, 
often we rule ourselves out. And if you find yourself in a position like that, and I find myself there fairly often, then what we need to do is to come back to this truth, which is that the Spirit is a gift. And he's given because Jesus is glorified. So um, what can help us get it in a deeper way is just to come back to some of the scriptures where this is made plain. Um, One of the things that John tries to help us to see is that the Spirit is coming from what Jesus does on the cross. Um, And he does that in all these, these little ways that I'd never noticed until somebody pointed it out to me, but... One of them is, when Jesus in John's gospel, when he dies on the cross, he, he cries out, it is finished. And then, John says, with this, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And a literal translation of that is, he gave up the ghost. He died. That's what John is telling us, he died. But also, John loves, like in his gospel, he loves double meaning. So a lot of his, um, a lot of stuff, you can, there are layers to what he's saying. So this does mean Jesus died. But also, if you look at it, in the original Greek, it doesn't actually say he gave up um, his spirit. It says he gave up the spirit. And the word gave up could also be translated, he handed over. So at this moment of death, it's not stretching what John has written to say, at that moment, he bowed his head and handed over the spirit. And then the next thing that happens is a soldier comes and he thrusts a spear through Jesus' side. And we're told in the text that this flow of blood and water comes out of Jesus' side. And again, there's layers of meaning. So one of the things that that means is Jesus has died. And scientifically, that's what would have happened if he'd been, you know, as he was crucified. That's what we'd expect when you throw a spear into somebody's side, blood and water to come out. So there's the science of that. There's the fact that he's dead. But also there's the symbolism. So blood pours out of Jesus' side, and blood symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. But also, water comes out of his side. And the water symbolizes the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so the reason that a river of living water can well up within us is because water poured out from within him. One of the next big things that happens is is at the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples and they're locked in a room because they're afraid. And I love the way the Lord treats them, but we haven't got time to go into all of it. But um, one of the things he does is he shows them his scars. Here, look. Look at my hands. Look at my side. And you read about him doing that in, in this room in John's gospel. Look here. And I always imagine it as a way of him saying, here's what I've done for you. And here's what I've won for you. And then the very next thing that happened, after he says to them, look at my scars, look what I've been through, then do you know what he says? Receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes on them. And then the Spirit is is ultimately poured out on the day of Pentecost in the upper room where they're all gathered together. You know, the last thing that they did with Jesus in the upper room is the, the, the Last Supper. It's where Jesus took bread and he said, effectively, this is my body given for you, broken for you. He takes the cup, which symbolizes his blood shed for us. So that is a symbol of all that he's going to go through on the cross. And then in that very same space where last he told them that he was going to give his body for them, the spirit is poured out because the spirit flows from the cross. The spirit is, is made available because of what Jesus has done on the cross Um, To quote this guy called Tom Smale, he says, there can be no Pentecost without Calvary. The Spirit comes from the cross. And just 
getting this in our bellies, not just in our heads, but in our, in our hearts, um, it is, it's not an overstatement to say that it's life-changing because it changes the way that we expect God to move and who we expect him to meet. Um, so I think about it like this. Mike, as you may well know, he travels around the world a lot. And whenever he flies anywhere, he flies economy. But if you do a lot of travel, you get like, you accumulate air miles and you get certain status, like mileage status. And he's at the point now where he's got so many air miles that um, he's allowed to go in and use the first class lounges at the airports. And um, I remember when I was his intern um, back in the day, I had never been anywhere really. I'd been on a plane once on a family holiday to Crete. But apart from that, I'd been nowhere. And he said to me, oh, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go to America. Um, and so we go to Heathrow Airport and we, we um, walked through like the normal bit where all the normal people at Heathrow Airport have to hang out, the cattle sheds, where it's like plastic chairs that you can't really sleep on and all that sort of stuff. And he said, we can go to the first class bit. So we, we went to this bit where these beautiful sliding doors open and literally it's like you step over a threshold into another world because it's like plastic linoleum or whatever it's called on this floor and then you step in and it's marble. And there's this long, I remember there's this long marble-lined corridor and this rich mahogany desk at the end of it. And there was a receptionist behind the desk and she was looking snooty. And the truth is, neither I nor Mike look like we belong in the first-class lounge of Heathrow Airport, but we wander in. And, uh, and then we get to the desk and I remember that Mike, with, he's, got this, um, he's got this mileage plus gold card that is made of plastic but looks like it's gold. Um, and I remember with great ceremony at that point, he opened his wallet and pulled out this gold card and placed it on the desk and slid it over to the lady. And at that point, her whole demeanor changed. It was, Mr. Pilavachi, welcome back. Um, and so, and then, and then she turned after a few minutes and looked at me. And I have literally like been on a plane once about five years before. I have an economy ticket in my pocket. And so I just said to her, I'm with him. And she said, well, come on in. Enjoy our hospitality. And I said, well, thank you, I will, right? And I went in, loaded my hand luggage with as many free goodies as I could do, you know, get my hands on. But um, I remember thinking about it afterwards and just thinking, the question of who I was wasn't even asked. She didn't even ask. You know, there was no like, you know, how many miles have you got? How many haven't you got? It was literally not even a question to be asked. It was just, you're with him. Oh, okay, you're with him, you're in. And the way the gospel works is, is not that dissimilar to that in the sense of the, the question of who we are when it comes to the ministry and, and receiving the Spirit or praying for somebody else to receive the Spirit. The question of who we are or who they are is not even a question to consider. Because the Spirit is given on the basis of merit, but the only merit that matters is His. So our lack of merit isn't a factor. And we might say to her, well, you know, what we can sometimes do when we pray for other people is we can pray things like, Lord, heal Laura because she's lovely. She's the nicest person I've ever met. She made me a cake last week. Lord, if you don't, if, no, if anyone deserves a healing, it's Laura, right? The problem with that basis for prayer is for every Laura you find, you will find a Mike, just to pick a name completely at random, who doesn't deserve it. And so if, you, if it's like, oh gosh, do we deserve it? Don't we deserve it? We're stuffed. We're all stuffed. None of us deserve it. But it, none of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. But we don't need to. Because the Spirit is given because of what he has done. 
This isn't about merit, our merit. It's about his mercy. It's not about living some kind of a perfect life. It's about his perfect death. It's, it's about what's been done for us. And so we come to him and we remember this is because of the cross. So when we pray for people to be healed or we, we ask for a prophetic word, that's, that's not a distraction from the cross. That's the overflow of one of the things that was won for us on the cross. The cross didn't just mean we're forgiven for all we've done in the past. And it doesn't only guarantee eternity with him. It makes a way for him to be with us now through his spirit. The spirit is a gift. This is all grace. So put that stone in the pocket. Here's the other stone. Here's the other truth that we see here. What we can do is we can enjoy that truth, but also we can then start to ask the question, well, does anything I do actually matter? And this is where we write on the second stone, the other truth we want to take hold of, which is this, come and drink. And Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So the only qualification we need to receive the Spirit, the Spirit is given. The only qualification we need is to thirst. And um, when we say that, for me, I can think, oh no, now I feel guilty because I'm not thirsty enough. And uh, if you do that, just don't, don't worry about that one. Just say, Lord, make me thirsty. Make me, put salt on my lips that I would thirst for you. Make me thirsty. At the same time, I think, okay, the only qualification I need is the thirst. What does it look like in practice to thirst for God's presence? Like, what does that actually, if you want to earth that, what does that actually look like? And I think it looks like a few things. Here's one of them. It looks like, waiting for him. And so he says, if you noticed, to, to the disciples, just as he is about to ascend to heaven, this is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. There's a gift that's coming. The gift is promised. But what you need to do is you need to wait. Wait for the gift. Whenever I've read this first couple of chapters of Acts, what I do is I read this bit where he says, you know, wait for the gift to come. And then I love to skip to Acts chapter 2, where the gift comes and the Spirit is poured out. But in between Jesus' ascension to heaven and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there's about 10 days of waiting. So they go back to Jerusalem and they're just waiting there in the upper room. Now we struggle to wait 10 minutes, don't we? Let's invite the Holy Spirit, everybody. And then three and a half minutes later, well, he's... He's clearly not coming today, so let's just move on. They're there day one, they wait, and nothing happens. So they come back day two, nothing happens. Day three, nothing, no, nothing's happened. Day four, nothing. Day five, no. Day six, no. Day seven, it's been a whole week now. How long does it take to fly back to the Father? Like, how far away is he? Day number eight, nothing. They wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Now, one of my questions is, why the wait? Do you ever wonder that? Why doesn't he just say, go back to Jerusalem, get in the room, and then the Holy Spirit will come, and it will be really quick. Why, why, does, why does he make us wait? And I, I don't know the answer. Um, I wonder if part of it is, it's, it's an act of faith. And so I remember when we did a Naturally Supernatural conference here, and uh, this is about five or six years ago, the first meeting and Mike gave a talk on the Holy Spirit, and then he said, we're all going to wait for the Holy Spirit now. So I came and stood next to him, and he just said, let's wait on the Holy Spirit. So we all stood here in silence waiting on the Holy Spirit. And to me, it felt like we waited forever. 
And I was just looking at everybody. Everyone was just looking at us. And after about, you know, for the first minute, I was pretty confident the Holy Spirit was going to come. But after about, you know, two minutes of nothing happening, I was thinking maybe the Holy Spirit didn't get the invitation to Naturally Supernatural, which is going to be embarrassing because this is all about him. Um, and nothing was happening. And after three or four minutes, I started to panic a little bit. And I turned to Mike and I said, what do we do? What do we do? And what I was asking, what, what, what that was really asking is, how can we make him do something? And uh, Mike just was just cool as a cucumber. And he just turned to me and he just said, Andy, he's either going to do it or he isn't. That was it. And, uh, and that's a life lesson I've never forgotten. He'll either do it or he won't. But you can't manipulate the Spirit into doing something. And what we love to do when we say we wait for God is, after a while, because we're nervous, he's never going to show up. We love to fill that space with our own activity rather than literally just waiting for him. It reminds me of um, when I proposed to Beth, which was years and years ago now, um, but I tried to go big, and I planned this whole um, trip to Israel. Mike lent me some of his air miles, and I bought us two plane tickets, um, but it was all a big surprise, and so we ended up going on a 10-day sort of hike around Israel, staying in separate rooms in hostels. I feel like I need to justify myself, even if you weren't thinking about it. Um, and uh, anyway, but, but I didn't tell her, and, and so the night before, I took her out to this restaurant in Cambridge, and uh, the restaurant that I was going to take her to had burned down the day before, which I chose not to see as some kind of warning from God or anything like that, so I just ignored it. We went to the restaurant next door. And I got this card out during the meal, and I just slid it across to her. And um, she opened it, and it just said, pack your bags. Um, you know, we're going away tomorrow. And I didn't tell her where we were going, so we got to the airport. Then we get on this plane, and we fly there. And we went on this tour to, like, Galilee and all these beautiful places. But I had in mind the exact spot I wanted to propose, and it's this place called En Gedi, which is in the, um, next to the, the Dead Sea. Uh, it's in the desert. It's this beautiful sort of waterfalls and rock pools that just flow in the middle of the desert. There's all this life. Um, but we went on this little roundabout tour, so we didn't get there till about day six. And I, I remember finally getting her to this rock pool that I'd been aiming for for a long time by that stage. And uh, there was this Israeli man in Speedos just swimming around in our rock pool. So it was just the three of us there. Um, that wasn't kind of the image I'd had in my head when I was planning this entire... Um, so we got in the pool, and I just gave him the most evil look I could for about 10 minutes, and then he left. And then, and then I got down on one knee. That was it, in the water. Got down on one knee and proposed, and she said yes. Now, she, um, she, she, when did she know I was going to propose? Because obviously we talked about this. This wasn't totally out of the blue. When did she know I was going to propose? She knew the moment I put the card on the table in the restaurant and slid it over. She knew it was coming. But I kept her waiting. And so day one in Israel, she woke up. Is it going to be today? No. Day two? No. Day three? No. Day five? Maybe he just wants a holiday in Israel. Like maybe he just wants to take me. Day six? That's when I did it. Why did I keep her waiting? I wasn't playing a game with her. We, we knew where this was going. We knew it was serious. I kept her waiting in part because I think it made it more special. They woke up, day one. Is it going to be today? I mean, they knew he was coming. They knew he was coming. They knew he wasn't messing with them. He's made a promise. So the spirit is coming. No, not today. Day two. Is it going to be today? Day three. No. 
And then even the way he does it on day 10, he catches them off guard because it's 9 a.m. when the spirit comes. I mean, that's not the time you would expect him to pay. I would be like, it's the evening meeting. You know, we're all on fire. But it's, uh, it's not. It's, it's 9 a.m. just as they're putting the cornflakes away. Now, there he is. When a child asks you for a bike in October, can I have a bike for Christmas? You don't say, sure, here you go. You say, we'll see. And then they come back a couple of weeks later, can I get that bike now? Well, maybe, let's just see what happens at Christmas. Then they come back in November. Well, it's, it's still six weeks to Christmas. We'll see what happens. And then they come back at the start of December, Advent, you know, can I have it now? Well, it's 25 days, see this countdown. This is gonna be, you know, we'll look at this every day. And then on Christmas Day, they get the bike. What is their reaction? Joy. Far richer than if they say, can I have a bike? And he says, sure. That he keeps us waiting. I wonder if in part because he wants to make it even more special to give us himself. This is not Deliveroo we're waiting on. It's the living God. I remember, um, do you know what? I won't say that because I'm running out of time. So we wait. That's one way we thirst. Here's the second way. We surrender. Um, when I arrived here, I had emotionally pretty much shut down um, by that point. And the reason for that was because I'd been hurt, um, you know, nothing terrible, um, but I'd been hurt and I decided I was not gonna feel pain anymore. And what I didn't know when I made that vow to myself is that you can't selectively numb your emotions. So if you numb the pain, you also numb all the joy. Um, I put all this armor on and I, um, I didn't know how to take it off again. I built all this wall up between me and the world to protect myself, and I didn't know how to take the wall down. And what I wanted the Lord to do is I wanted him to bulldoze the wall away. Holy Spirit, meet me. Boom. Deal with all my issues. And the Lord does that sometimes for people, but for me, he didn't. That wasn't how it worked. It was like I would come to him. I'd say, Lord, I don't know what to do. And just he'd just meet me very gently, and he'd take a brick out of the wall. I'll come back a little while later, very kindly, he just take one more brick down. And, and over a period of years, it's like it, it, the problem I discovered was not that he was going to let me go somehow, it's that I was struggling to let me go. I was struggling to trust. Have you ever had it where you've had a really hard week at work and you just hold it together, hold it together, hold it together, and then you meet a great friend who's known you for 20 years and it's a Friday night, and you've just had the worst week, but you haven't let on that it's been tough. You've just kept going. And then your mate just sits you down in the pub, or they sit you down in a coffee shop or whatever, and they just say, how are you doing, really? And then you lose it. Have you ever done that? It's because that person is safe, and we know they are. And for us, part of receiving more of him is just actually, in part, it's coming to understand that he's, it's okay to be in his presence. We can tell him how much we're hurting. We can scream at him, and he's all right with that. We can cry, and he's not frightened off. We can, we can yield to him. So it's, it's a, I, I give myself to you, even the bits I don't know how to give to you. I wanna give them to you. I surrender. That's part of thirst. Here's the final thing that I think is part of thirsting. We obey. We obey him. Um, there's a story that I heard a while ago, a true story, about this guy who was a missionary in a part of China. And uh, he was trying to translate the, you know, the good news into that particular dialect. 
And the principles with translation are, when you're translating something, you go for like the nearest equivalent. If there's not a literal equivalent, you go for the nearest possible one. And he was trying to help them understand who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a word for Father, so that was straightforward. And there was a word for Son, so that was easy. But um, when it came to the Holy Spirit, he was struggling to know, how do I translate the Holy Spirit into this particular dialect? And in the end, he landed on this phrase, the resident boss as the nearest equivalent. So there was, for a while in China, a place where the Trinity was known as the Father, the Son, and the resident boss. And I think that is a brilliant uh, name for the Spirit. He comes to lead. When we read the stories in the book of Acts, it's not the Holy Spirit following them around. It's them following the lead of the Spirit. It's not that the church has the Spirit. It's that the Spirit has the church. That's the way around this works. And he comes to us en route to the world. And what we do, um, and I do this probably worse than almost anybody I've met really, is we find ways to rationalize him away to, so that we don't have to obey, so that we don't have to step out, so we don't have to go to the uncomfortable place. Because even as the Spirit comes from the cross, he leads us to the cross. When Jesus says to them, you'll have power to be witnesses, the word for witnesses is martyrs. You'll have power to lay down your lives to glorify me. And, and part of seeing him move more is being willing to put on the altar our fear, our reputation, our need to be in control. But as we do that, we see him move. There are two truths that we want to hold on to. Which one do you need to grab today? The first is this. The Spirit is a gift. It's not about merit. It's never going to be about deserving. This is, he gives us himself because of Jesus. The second is this. Come and drink. Wait. Yield. Surrender. Obey. And as we do that, we see him move more and more.